Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace, which we uh, spell out P-E-A-C-E and P-I-E-C-E, as in a work or something to share. This is a podcast about Utah's history. My name's Brad Westwood. I'm senior public historian at the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. The past is never the past. It's all around us. And this podcast, if there's one podcast you get involved in related to Utah's history, we hope this is the one. My guest today is Richard E. Turley, a former assistant church historian and recorder for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In our former podcast, in the prior podcast, we talked a lot about history over the last 40 years. Um, I'd, I'd like to ask about preservation. I, I think the idea of preservation is a vital aspect to the church's approach to history. Speak to that, would you please? As I mentioned on the last podcast, the, the mantra for the time that we were in the church history department was collect, preserve, and share. Once we acquired materials and before we shared them, we needed to make certain that they would be around for succeeding generations. When you and I first met in the old east wing of the of the church office building, Preservation was a major issue. It was a major issue in part because that space had not been constructed for preservation. It had been constructed as office space. So the storage areas had windows in them, leading to tremendous fluctuations in temperature and relative humidity. I think at one time, looking at the architectural drawings, Rick, they actually thought of building an MTC in that wing too. There was consideration of an MTC. There was consideration of a stake center or at least a a meeting house in that space. So deciding that it was going to be a records facility was a late addition to that wing. The, The building itself had been motivated by the idea of preserving records, but that particular space was not... So it didn't have adequate engineering for the the weight that was being added to it as we collected more and more materials. It allowed sunshine in with all the problems that light brings, including fading of books and, and materials. The biggest concerns that I had as the managing director of the department were earthquake and fire. I had lived in Japan and experienced a great number of earthquakes. I knew that with the Wasatch uh, Fault, we were going to to be expecting an earthquake at any time that could be massive. I knew from my experience living in Japan that earthquakes could easily be followed by fire. In the great Kanto earthquake of 1923, September 1923, a few thousand people were killed in the crush and more than 100,000 in the fire. I also had the odd experience one day while I was at my home in West Jordan getting a telephone call informing me that our local seminary was on fire. I climbed up on my roof and looked down the street to the seminary and saw the the dark smoke billowing up from it. And it turned out that even though the seminary was almost directly across the street from a fire station and the response was immediate, the, the fire people could do nothing to save the building and its contents. It was a complete loss. And I thought about the east wing of the church office building and how similar it was to that seminary building, which was essentially a a steel and concrete facility full of flammable materials. The east wing of the church office building had virtually no fire suppression equipment. It was a large concrete structure full of paper. And I knew that if if there was something that started a fire, an electrical problem or a deliberate act of, of arson, that we would lose the priceless heritage of the church. And, of course, human life would have been the first uh, thing people would uh, seek out and make sure people are safe. And and if a building's not prepared in any form or another, 
it's pretty hard to double back after human life is saved. It is. And we did have, we did have drills in place and, and procedures in place for making certain that the people were safe first and foremost. But once the people were safe, we then had to think about the materials and it, Simply put, the facility just was inadequate. We talked with engineers. We thought about taking the shelving and bolting it to the floor and ceiling so that in case of an earthquake, people would be safe and the materials would be safer. And we were told we couldn't do that because it would it would take the floors, which were already at maximum, and weaken them further. We tried all kinds of other things. Ultimately, we decided we needed to build a new facility. So we looked all around the world, and we collected the best ideas and built the Church History Library, which is today one of the most revolutionary state-of-the-art facilities for preservation that exist. There are 12 vaults in the building. Ten of those vaults are kept at 55 degrees Fahrenheit and 35% relative humidity constantly throughout the year, regardless of outside conditions. There are two floors just of the engineering equipment necessary in order to pull off that miracle. We have two vaults that are kept at minus 4 degrees Fahrenheit. Why so cold? couple of reasons. One, if you have color images, those color images often fade unless they're kept at a very low temperature. And a second reason is that a lot of the materials that were published, particularly beginning in the fourth quarter of the 19th century through the early part of the 20th century, are highly acidic. And if you have highly acidic materials, you can put them in deep freeze, and that helps to keep them from off-gassing. Why don't you want them to off-gas? Because if these highly acidic materials off-gas, they're going to off-gas what's basically uh, sodium dioxide. And that sodium dioxide, SO2, if you remember your chemistry class, combined with H2O gives you H2SO4, which is sulfuric acid. And that sulfuric acid then Permeates. deteriorates the other materials that are in there. Well, and uh, for me, having seen and worked in a number of different repositories, pretty much all over the state and even when I was living in Philadelphia, uh, the the amount of thought and uh, uh, financial commitment by the LDS Church um, was just uh, tremendous. Um, in some ways, though, it's protecting your assets. I mean, when you think of the amount of material in value, uh, not to mention historical value, intrinsic value, you know, there's things in that, uh, in your vaults that uh, can never be replaced. Yes, they are, they are valuable monetarily, but far more important to us is the, the value of them for their content and also for their artifactual value. Uh, people say, what's artifactual value? And I point them to the little freedom shrines that exist in many schools and public buildings around the country where you can see on the wall a copy of a page from the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States and other Bill form of rights formative and materials. and. If you stand in a hallway and watch people pass by, very few stop to look at these important copies. But if you go to the National Archives on Pennsylvania Avenue, you will see people line up for a long period of time to pass by the originals, and you'll see them weep. The difference between the copies and the originals is that artifactual value. You know, I, I, it strikes me just recently with our Spike 150, 150th anniversary, bringing three out of the four spikes and President Lincoln's original 1862 uh, document starting the whole Transcontinental Railroad. We had, I think, over 40,000 people. So it speaks. I, I have at my desk a couple of gold spike um, facsimiles. But there's something about that bona fide, seeing those real things that really 
make magic for many people. Seeing real objects and seeing real places, the places where things occurred, move people. There's a spirit to place an artifact. So, Rick, when I think, again, of uh, uh, preservation, uh, that 10-year march to a new building on the um, northeast corner across from Temple Square, I think, too, as I've traveled around, and I've done a fair amount of acquisition work across to Utah, United States, and even beyond, people want those materials close by. There's nothing quite... Um, well, there's actually harm, I think, when you take people's patrimony and historical materials and you box them up and you take them to some far place where there's no access. I know the LDS Church has, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a broad footprint across the world. How do you sort out all that history for all those people beyond Utah? When you and I first arrived in the Church Historical Department, it was a single destination location. You had to go there in order to look at materials, which means that when people wanted to donate materials or if we did some type of acquisition work, it came to one central location in Utah. My responsibilities in the church history department, church historical department, and for 12 years, the family history department made it possible for me to travel around the world and to see historical sites and talk to people about the church's history globally. As I did so, I became less and less comfortable with the idea of taking original documents and artifacts and moving them from their place of origin to a facility in the United States. It felt to me that that was not ideal for the, the donors, who, if they donated, generally would never see the materials again because they couldn't afford to travel to a destination location. And it didn't feel right to me in many other ways. For example, the materials were generally written in the local language, Transferring that material to Salt Lake City meant transferring it into an area where most of the users couldn't understand what was going on in the documents because they didn't understand the language. At the same time, we were working very assiduously on creating a good digital preservation program. And as I pondered these two ideas, the ideas of keeping the material local and also digitizing, the idea came that perhaps we could use both of those to create a far better model than the one we had. So ultimately what we did was to create a series of record repositories around the world where people could make donations and keep the material closer to them and closer to the people who had the language skills and the understanding of the context and the, the culture to make sense of them and also to appreciate them. And number two, we could digitize the materials so that they would be available globally. So let's suppose that you live in, in Thailand and you have something that you want to donate We'll keep that material relatively close in an area office and we'll digitize that material ultimately so that if you are a student at, say, the University of Utah who came from Thailand and is interested in researching the history of the church in Thailand, you'll be able to look online and see a digital copy. And then when you return to Thailand and, say, go to Hong Kong where the area office is, you might be able to ultimately see the, the original item itself. Well, I uh, uh, I remember once being in South Africa and seeing the, some ways, um, very strong multi-generational uh, church experience there. Uh, they're having their own uh, pioneer experience in their continent. Uh, I think it's quite fitting and appropriate uh, to keep materials close by, and I, I think that was a major contribution to, I think, your tenure 
while you were with the church. So one of my heroes, and I think hero of many people who are listening to this podcast, is Leonard J. Arrington. Uh, I started out at Utah State. I heard many stories about his work. Uh, we've read his uh, histories. Um, just a major uh, imprint on the history of Utah. He then left USU, was asked to be church historian. Uh, there were years that uh, many described now as Camelot, this magic period where the church had, where people had access to history. Um, now, 40 years later, I think the things that he started many things have been finished or even made better. I'd like to ask you to compare and contrast now and say 40 years ago during the era we call Camelot or some call Camelot. Sure. Leonard J. Arrington was a formative individual. Not only did he play a major role during his years as church historian, but probably more than any other person of his era, he was a mentor to many up-and-coming historians. A fascinating exercise would be to go to all of the books written about church history during that time period and look in the acknowledgments. And in many, many cases, you would find that Leonard Arrington's name is in there, indicating the influence that he had, not just through his own writings, but through seeding the writings of others, with whom he also happily shared a lot of the research that he did. The 10-year period that he was at church headquarters was called, as you said, the Camelot era. It was a 10-year time period. Contrasting that with what's happened since that time, during, I was there for 30 years. You were there for how long, Brad? Well, uh, three times altogether, about 17 years. So that, that roughly those three decades, three times as long as he was there, gave us the opportunity to take many of the ideas that he had and develop them. So I think if, if Leonard Arrington were alive today, he'd be very pleased with the way that the church acquires and preserves and shares information. He was particularly interested in the sharing component. Many people know that he and the historians, many of the historians who were with him, ended up moving from church headquarters to Brigham Young University. As I mentioned on the, the earlier podcast, what many people may not know is that the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute at BYU was later dissolved, and many of the historians from that institute were absorbed back in, up into Salt Lake City to form the, the core of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. So we were able to take that group, reacquire it into church headquarters, into facilities that were much better than they had before, give them excellent equipment, and make available the materials so that they could produce the, the award-winning Joseph Smith Papers. So... Um Again, just contrasting, I think there's an incredible continuation of access. Um, in many ways, I think, uh, Mr. Turley, what was envisioned 40 years ago was executed over the course of your career. Yes, I think that's why uh, Leonard would be very, very satisfied if he were alive today. He, if he had lived to see the fulfillment of many of the ideas that he had at the time for acquiring materials and and preserving them in the long run and making them available, particularly making them available. Well, Rick, I really appreciate you coming and being part of this uh, uh, this podcast. Um, let me just, uh, last question, tell me about your research interests. Uh, you're, you're, um, you've moved on to other work for the church. Uh, history still stays, uh, it's a bug in your or, or a burr in your collar. Tell me about what's going on now and what's the future hold for 
Richard E. Turley in history. I will always retain an interest in Latter-day Saint and Utah history and Western U.S. history. At the time, I'm working on several projects simultaneously. As we mentioned in the earlier podcast, Barbara Jones Brown and I are finishing up this, the sequel to Massacre at Mountain Meadows. I'm working on a, a major biography. And in addition to that, I've had a longstanding interest in the, the explorations of John Wesley Powell and his crews. So I'm working on a series of three books that will cover the 1869, 1871, and 1872 Powell expeditions that took him down the Green and Colorado Rivers in a, in a voyage of discovery. Um, it, when I think of, of uh, our time together, I see you often. Uh, we both belong to a history club called the Utah Westerners. Uh, this is a club that involves uh, people who are uh, not members of the LDS Church. Uh, in fact, I don't know many. I don't know who what they belong to, but I know they have a love of Utah's history. Um, I, there's altogether about 75 members. Uh, uh, we have a constant list of people interested. Uh, each month, there's some impactful history that's described. And then we have a Q&A after. Uh, what are the, some of the, can you think of some of the sessions you've enjoyed most from the Utah Westerners? One thing I like about the Westerners dinner lectures is that we get to see a lot of people who are working on history, Utah history, Western history, and see it, see these people talk about history from a wide variety of perspectives. I am one who believes that no subject is ever fully exhausted. If you have interest in a particular subject and want to tackle it, you can make a contribution to the field if you're willing to invest yourself deeply enough to do it. Well, and we have such a tradition of uh, non-academic historians in Utah that have produced some remarkable, defensible material that has stand the, the stand for many years. Um, when I think of the Mountain Meadow Massacre, and let me end with that, um, you know, I heard one time someone say, well, when the church publishes all this material on Mountain Meadow Massacre, that will settle the story. How would you answer that question? I don't believe that, and I don't think it's right for this reason. When people say that to me, I say to them, if you are a Latter-day Saint, would the publication of a single volume cause you thereafter not to talk about what happened at Carthage in 1844? No, you want to memorialize that event. It's important to you and your history. And so it is with Mountain Meadows. If you are descendants or relatives of the victims of the massacre, you want to memorialize that. You want to talk about it throughout the year and have an event annually in which you remember those people and what happened to them. So history is something that will have a continual discussion and should, in my opinion. I think that's one of the joys of history is it's never ending. Each generation understands their past differently and needs to. They need to dig in and understand it better. Yes, every generation interprets the past in the context of the present. Uh, Rick Turley, it's been a pleasure to have you on Speak Your Peace. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you, Brad. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah history share their insights and discoveries. When you're looking forward, planning for the future, you should first examine carefully the past. This is what this podcast strives to do for the many diverse and geographically varied communities who live in Utah. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll listen in again. Thank you.